0: Welcome, everybody. I'm Amy Klein. I am a volunteer at Temple Emanuel. I am privileged to serve on the board of Combined Jewish Philanthropies and on the board of the Shalom Hartman Institute. And at Temple Emanuel, I am the leader of all things Hartman, no matter what they are. And tonight is certainly a highlight for us. I wish that I were welcoming you to Temple Emanuel to our beautiful sanctuary but instead here we are on Zoom and despite the confusion of this last minute change we're very happy you could join us and that so many of you could join us. It's great to be with you. Um, In addition to the switch to online learning tonight unfortunately last minute Wes was called to Israel to be with his ailing father-in-law so I know that Wes is very disappointed not to be here with Yessi and with everybody else. And uh, our thoughts are with Wes and Shira and Rabbi Goodman at this very difficult time. We're grateful to Rabbi Mark Baker, President and CEO of Combined Jewish Philanthropies, for stepping into the conversation to be in dialogue with Yessi. Mark, we really appreciate your being here and our partnership with CJP in our partnership with CJP, with Temple Emanuel, and with Hartman, and and all things um, in in Jewish Boston. We are facing an extremely difficult time in Israel right now. And it's very hard to get our heads and, frankly, our hearts around what's going on there. And honestly, I can think of no one better, no institution better than the Shalom Hartman Institute to help us make sense of the difficult things that are happening right now in Israel. Uh, one of the best voices from Hartman to help us deal with the challenges is here with us tonight on our screen and that would be Yossi Klein-Halevi. Yossi, we are counting on you on helping us deal with this troubling news and how we move forward from here. I think in Boston, you need no, no um, introduction, but I'm gonna do it anyway. So, Yossi is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. He's co-director of Hartman's Muslim Leadership Initiative author, co-host of one of Hartman's two fantastic podcasts, for heaven's sake. And frankly, Jesse, you're a favorite teacher of ours at the at Temple Emanuel in Jerusalem, when we're at the community leadership program every summer. And when you're here with us here in Boston. So whether we're in Jerusalem or we're here in Boston or you're online or in our heads in the podcast, you're one of our favorites. And we're really happy to welcome you here to be with us, to help us make sense what's going on. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank
1: you.
0: Mark.
2: Thank you so much, Amy, um, for your words and your leadership um, and your passion. And um, a huge thank you to the Edward Fine Foundation for being what I would call a prime mover and lead funder um, of the CJP, Sheldon Hartman Institute Partnership. Uh, A special thank you to Temple Emanuel for hosting tonight um, and for all the ways um, that you create a vibrant, engaged learning community. CJP is so proud to partner with you um, tonight and in so many other ways. Yossi, I'm sorry we're not together in person for this interview, and I'm sorry that uh, you get me instead of Wes but it is always um, an incredibly meaningful opportunity to talk with you and learn from with you. So welcome back to Boston.
1: Thank you, Mark, and really wonderful to be with you. And I'm sorry, I apologize to all of you for not being there in person. But
2: So before we jump in, Yossi, and, and we get to the, the kind of acute uh, moment we're in, I just want to zoom out for a second um, for all of us and remind us that this year uh, marks 75 years since uh, the miraculous creation of the modern state of Israel, which is a milestone uh, for the Jewish people whose significance I think we cannot overstate. And I think you know this, Yossi, but here in Boston, we've launched uh, an initiative called SPARC, which is a multi-year initiative to celebrate Israel's 75th by bringing a thousand people from uh, across our diverse Jewish community to Israel. Um, And more importantly, to ignite our Jewish future through community and connection, through learning and Jewish ideas and through leadership. Uh, because we want to be a place where every voice matters and where everyone can find meaning and relevance in Judaism and Jewish life, and where we are really co-creating our future together. We are building on a tremendous legacy of Jewish learning here in Boston. And I'm so proud that our community's ties and bonds with Israel run so deep. For me. Israel and our relationships with it are essential to any vision of the Jewish future that I can imagine for our community or for the Jewish people. So because Spark is not only about those who are traveling to Israel, the learning and connections that we're creating are meant to include everyone who wants to be a part of this. Um, and because of your thoughtfulness and honesty and Yossi, because of your menschlichkeit, I'm so honored that tonight you're going to be part of our Spark journey. Um, and that's the joy. And all of that would be true, um, even if we were not in what feels like an incredibly challenging, painful and scary moment for Israel um, and for the Jewish people. Um, and for the relationship between our community, North American Jewry and Israel, as Amy alluded to. So let's get right into it, Yossi. We, we titled this conversation, Israel's Identity Crisis. How should friends of Israel respond? So. I think um, we should start with the identity crisis as you see it. Maybe you can help us understand it perhaps by starting with the judicial reform, but add in anything else that you think is relevant for us to understand what is going on in Israel at this current moment.
1: So um, before I I get to to your question, I I just want to say a a preliminary remark uh, in response to what you were talking about a moment ago about uh, the Boston Jewish community mobilizing for the 75th. And I, I apologize, everyone, for my, my fluish voice. <clears throat> the, um, you know, thinking about this moment in Israel, I feel this, this urgent, almost desperate need to reach out. To American Jews and to include you in what's happening in, in, in Israel. We in Israel have taken American Jewish love for granted for so long. And, and it come, when when it comes to a moment like this, I feel that we don't have the right to betray your love. And that's part of, of what I personally feel as as someone who was born and raised in the American Jewish community, I left, but never entirely. I always remained organically connected to the Jewish community. My my principal career as a writer, as a lecturer, has been to American Jewry. I've been on the JFK Ben-Gurion line for I'm living in Israel 40 years, probably 30 years out of those 40, I've been been going back and forth, trying to be a kind of a translator, a simultaneous translator between the two communities. And I have never felt as desperate a need as I do today to reach out and not reassure American Jews, because what I have to say for the most part is not reassuring but to include you in in this struggle because the struggle for a decent Israel is not only an Israeli struggle, it's it's a struggle for the Jewish people. And, And what we're really fighting for is for the continuation of our relationship. Because if God forbid, Israel is fundamentally remade in the image of this terrible government, then we are, we are fatally risking the, the, the vitality of uh, the durability of this relationship. And, and uh, I feel like I'm fighting personally for my life's work. My life's work has been bringing these two communities together. And, and this is the moment when, when this is the moment of truth. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm just very grateful to all of you for showing up tonight and for the the love and concern that you're showing. So in terms of what this moment is, there is the immediate crisis, which is the assault on judicial independence, which the government and its supporters misleadingly uh, called by the innocent euphemism of judicial reform. This has nothing to do with judicial reform. Israel needs judicial reform. This is judicial revolution. This is the destruction of the independence of the judiciary. The government's proposal would would concentrate effectively all power in the hands of the prime minister. We have no constitution. We only have one legislative house. If you you do away with the ability of the court to, to override parliament, you are effectively handing all power to the prime minister, not just any prime minister, a prime minister who was on trial on three counts of corruption, a prime minister who has bent the entire political system for the last four years to his personal legal troubles. And to hand unlimited authority to this prime minister is to my mind a, a um, a situation we've never been in before in Israel. I I would go so far as to say that this is the first time in Israel's history when existential threat has become internalized, and and it isn't it it the, the judicial the assault on the judiciary is the is the primary threat, but it's by no means the only threat. Look what's happening literally today, yesterday, today uh, in Judea and Samaria. We've just seen a mass Jewish pogrom. I don't think we've ever seen that. I don't think we've seen that in in several thousand years. And hundreds of Jews burned dozens of of homes, dozens of Palestinians were injured and, and the, the outrage that I feel and so many others feel that we all feel about the terror attacks, the, the atrocities that are accumulating, that's on one side of the election. Nothing, absolutely nothing justifies the kind of outrage that we're seeing playing out in Hawara. And, uh, and that I, I'm afraid we're going to see a lot more of. And the reason for that, the reason this is happening in such an intense way now, and it's never happened like this before. We've had, of course, we've had Jewish terrorism, but it's always been small groups. We have, we have never had this kind of mass pogrom before. And that's the only word for what happened yesterday. And, and it's, it's excruciating to borrow that word from, from Jewish history. But that's what we saw yesterday. And the reason I believe that this is happening is because the radical elements among the settlers, and it's very important to emphasize the radical elements within the settler community, not the entire settler community by any means, they feel that they're now in government, and they are. The police, the the minister in charge of the Israeli police is a criminal, an ideological criminal. This government is divided between two kinds of criminals. There's the ideological criminals, and then there's the petty criminals, people like Aryeh Deri, uh, others who who are facing uh, indictment or or have already been been found guilty uh, of, of normal corruption. Then you have the ideologically corrupt, the extremists. And so the extreme elements uh, on the far right see a reflection of themselves in this government and feel empowered. And when I saw the events unfolding last night, I actually thought back to the Arab riots of the 1930s, excuse me, in the land of Israel. And there was a chant that the Arab pogromists in the 1930s would 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 uh, would would offer as, as as they were killing Jews, which is the government is with us. They meant the British government, the mandate. And what I felt last night was the the brazenness of of, uh, of the Israeli far right. I, is a result of that feeling of the government is with us. Now, not the entire government. Netanyahu was not supporting that by any means. <clears throat> but he created the conditions for this to <clears> happen. <throat> he empowered the communists. He empowered the far right. And now this is, this is the result. This is playing out. So the wider context of, uh, of, of what we're experiencing is the least morally legitimate government in Israel's history. Uh, this is not a normative government. This is this is unlike anything we've ever seen before, and it has taken many of us, understandably, time to to internalize the fact that we're dealing with something new entirely here. We're also dealing with with a new Netanyahu. You know, we've 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 all become accustomed to a, a Netanyahu who is pragmatic, right of center, but was always restrained, was the one who oversaw the economic miracle, the Abraham Accords. Uh, this is a man with, with tremendous a tremendous historical legacy. And the tragedy is he's now destroying everything that he built. The Israeli economy is in critical danger. The high-tech, the startup nation miracle uh, is in danger because of this government. Uh, the, the most minimal social solidarity is, is unraveling. Our, our moral restraint in the territories is collapsing. Uh, good governance is falling apart. The, the, the corruption, the political corruption that we're seeing uh, just in the last two months of this government is unprecedented in its in its brazenness. I keep, I keep coming back to that word. This is a government without shame. And, and so the wider context and what's really animating the protests on the streets is, first of all, the need to save the judiciary, but more broadly, this deep sense of violation that we feel, how could you be representing us? How could you be representing the, the state of the Jewish people? Uh, you know, when, I, when, when, when I, I stand in the crowds, and I've, I've been going religiously every week uh, to the demonstrations, uh, I sense this around me. People are just outraged. I was standing next to, next to this woman and just out of nowhere, she starts shouting, bushah, bushah, disgrace. You know, and then everybody else picks it up as a chant. But this, it's this eruption of, of, of outrage. And, um, and so that's what we're dealing with now. And it's playing out in so many ways. We're being assaulted from so many directions that every day I, 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 I wake up and I, and I open my computer, I'm afraid to look at the news.
2: Can I? I just want to first of all, that was a powerful opening salvo. I'm not exactly sure where we go from there. Um, so, um, but since you you went into a lot of details for people, and I've heard you talk about the the kind of at the at the highest level, kind of what it means for Israel to be um, a, a Jewish democracy, a democracy, and a state for the Jewish people. Can you just zoom out for a minute? and just talk, when you talk about saving democracy, for example, you mentioned the judiciary again, but just give us, in your eyes, a couple of the core tenets of what it means for Israel to be a democracy that are at risk right now, just so we're we're level setting for everybody.
1: So let me say a couple of, of broad generalizations about Israeli democracy. First of all, Israeli democracy is a miracle And it's a miracle in two ways. First of all, because there is no other democracy that has been subjected to the kinds of relentless security threats and pressures as has Israel. And it's a miracle because of the demographic makeup of uh, of the population. Almost all Israelis come from societies, excuse me, without democratic traditions either Eastern Europe or the Middle East. And so you bring traumatized refugees really from, from, from the 20th century's most devastating historical experiences. And you, and you insert them into this relentless pressure cooker and miraculously, not only does democracy not fall apart, but it's strengthened. And I'm speaking within the green line now, obviously, within pre-67 sovereign Israel. And I'll come, I'll come to the territories in a moment. But when I say that is, that, that, that I celebrate Israeli democracy as a miracle, I, I also mean that in a um, with a certain with a certain anxiety because a miracle is not something you can take for granted. A miracle has to be nurtured, protected. When you have your own government assaulting democracy, now now you've been through this in America, but America is a big, powerful, old country. You have strong institutions. You survived Trump. Your institutions survived Trump. We have fragile institutions. We have fragile checks and balances. And when, when, when our government declares war on the democratic ethos and our democratic institutions, the result could be catastrophic. Now, there's another element here about what, what's, what's, at, what's at risk. Israel is not a paragon of democracy. It never was, and it can't be a paragon of democracy. And I mean a paragon of democracy in an objective sense. There are countries that are more democratic than Israel. But we we can't be a paragon of democracy, facing the kinds of security threats that we do, the need to constantly balance democratic norms with dealing with security threats, being bound to a seemingly endless occupation with no safe way to extricate ourselves. Those circumstances make it impossible for Israel to be a paragon of democracy. But what we are a paragon of is is for the struggle for democracy under near impossible circumstances. That's what makes Israeli democracy such an important experiment for, for, for humanity. If I can really be, be, be so so uh, so grand so grandiose in my in my Jewish declarations. The, the, the fact that we have not given up on our democratic norms under circumstances that would have defeated other countries long, long ago. The fact that we're still in this struggle for democracy is what makes Israel such a precious laboratory for democratic norms. And even our democratic failures are worth studying, because we are are the test case for democracy under extreme conditions. And so the fault lines, the cracks in Israeli democracy, are are also important to understand. What's at stake today is our ability to hold that tension between security and and decency. This is an indecent government. This is a government that has no patience for that tension between, between security and democratic norms. Now, it's interesting, and just one last point, if I may, Mark, which is that there are two groups within the Jewish people that have no patience for this Israeli balancing act between security and democratic norms, and that is the far right and the far left. Each of them dismisses this this creative tension uh, for different reasons. The far right believes that democratic norms uh, are are holding us back from protecting ourselves adequately, and we we have the power. We should use it indiscriminately. And, and Harawa is, uh, is, is, is the, the perfect example of, that's the end point of their vision. The far left, Peter Beinart and others, dismiss the struggle for democracy as being hip, uh, hypocritical. You're occupying, you're, you're denying the Palestinians their rights, you, can, you have no right to call yourself a democracy. And they miss exactly what's precious, about Israeli democracy, which is precisely our ability to be in the mess of things. And actually, if I could just make one last point, which is really, I'd say, a Hartman point. Amy, this is for you. And that is that my reading of how Judaism works is that Judaism doesn't go for the ideal. Judaism goes for the real. We work in the real world. We work with human nature. That's, what, that's how halacha operates. It deals with what is, and it tries to make what is incrementally better. That is the classic move of what Israeli society has, has, has been doing with our, our struggle between democracy in the Middle East. What does it mean to have a democracy in the most volatile region in the world, in a region that until recently has been unanimous in rejecting our legitimacy, has subjected us to nonstop war. And yet our response is, yes, we have an occupation. Yes, we're we're, we're dealing with, with overwhelming security threats, but we're not giving up the struggle for democracy. This government has given up in the same way that the far left has given up.
2: Got it. And just to be specific, I think going back to the judicial reforms, things like removing checks and balances on power, things like putting protection of minorities at risk and subjecting them potentially to the kind of tyranny of the majority, those are things that in your eyes would remove that healthy, productive tension that is about the struggle for democracy.
1: Yes. Yeah. And Um, uh, just the, the, there's a, it's interesting because when you when you listen to people in the government defend their policies, they say, we are bringing more democracy. It's the Supreme Court, which is undemocratic. They're not elected. We're elected by the majority. And so there's a, a fundamental debate here about what is the meaning of democracy? Yeah. Is it the absolute rule?
2: Yossi, Yossi, we lost you. I think your mic. No, we lost you again. No. Don't worry, everyone. We'll give Yossi a minute to come back. No. Yep, you're back. You're back.
1: Okay. Okay. Sorry. So there's a, there's a, Basic divide over what is the meaning of democracy. Uh, the liberal understanding of democracy is that it's a delicate dance between majority rights and minority rights. This government has a very different view of democracy. It is the absolute rule of the majority. The majority has the right to trample on 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 the rights of a minority. It also has the right to negate. Uh, democratic laws and uh and to dismantle democratic institutions because it's the majority and uh and that that's what this struggle is about as
2: well thank you for just being a little more specific because my experience has been and I'm spending every day talking about this with leaders from around the country anxiety about democracy democracy i I actually think it behooves us to not just talk about threats to democracy but to start actually, being more explicit about those kind of core elements of liberal democracy that we're talking about. So, yes, um, the, the could I just say
1: one more yeah. one yeah. more yeah. example about that, which is really I think important in terms of of what's happening in the in the debate. When the government and its defenders try to to explain what this policy is about, uh, they'll cite Uh, other legal systems. They'll say Canada has an override, and in the U.S., uh, the president appoints Supreme Court judges. And they leave out the web of checks and balances that all of these other democracies have, and we don't. So there's something so profoundly disingenuous about the way they're going about defending this. The other thing, that the other move that they'll make is they'll... uh, They'll say that that the supreme, the Israeli Supreme Court is hyperactivist, uh, has overextended its 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 boundaries, has imposed liberal Western norms that are at variance with large parts of the Israeli public. To some extent, and I emphasize to some extent, there is validity to those arguments. We need a national conversation on that. The fact that we haven't had a national conversation on that is the failure. Of the liberal camp, and we have to own that failure. On the other hand, to say that the Supreme Court uh, has has flaws, even deep structural flaws, is 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 very different than saying that this government and these policies, the, this this judicial revolution, is the is the legitimate antidote. The cure will be far worse than whatever ails the judicial system and and so the 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 weight of the conversation has to shift at initially at this point we need to be looking at what the government is actually proposing and what the consequences of that plan will be and then as a second stage to say okay we need we need a sensible judicial reform but not this plan And quite frankly, not with this government, not with a prime minister who's on trial, not with with political parties that are headed by convicted felons. Almost every party in this government is headed either by a convicted felon or by by someone on trial. Now, we've never had that situation. Is there another democracy anywhere where, where that's the case? And so this government has no legitimate right to oversee judicial reform in any way. I want to keep this government as far away from from judicial reform as possible.
2: So let me just say, first of all, we're getting a lot of questions from the crowd. People are writing me who want to hear what can American Jews do about this. I promise we are going to get there, but I need us to hold it for a couple more minutes. Because I I want to ask, I wanna ask you, and this may be a hard one because of how passionately and how clearly you have articulated all of the concerns about this moment, but um, can you just help us understand, I mean, this government was elected by, albeit a tiny majority, like for people in Israel who are not freaking out about this or who are not protesting in the streets, like. Can you offer us some sense of what someone who disagrees with you would say? Just so we have some. I think it's important sure. for American Jews to stay yes, it's very important and understand who Israel is right now.
1: <clears throat> OK, I, I, it goes back to what I said a moment ago about the critique of, of the court. And that critique has legitimacy. Up to a point, when, when, when the critics of the court say, that this government, that, that the court has acted at times arrogantly, they're right. When it says that it's kept the court as a closed club, they're right. There, are, uh, there were critics from within uh, the, the judicial community. I'm thinking of the late uh, Ruth Gavison, who was one of Israel's greatest jurists, who was kept out of the Supreme Court because she criticized elements of the court's overreach. Uh, the fact that the court is ethnically homogeneous. There's one Mizrahi on the court. Now, that's a scandal. That's outrageous. In 2023 Israel, uh, that, that there's, there's simply no justification for that. And so the critics have a point. This is a closed club that needs to be aired out. It needs to reflect something of the diversity of Israel and it also needs to 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 reflect to, to a greater extent the fact that we are a, a an Eastern country or I would say the meeting point between east and west that's really the essence of Israel as as an gathering of, of diasporas and so it has to reflect some something not only the Western ethos of individual rights, but something of the sense of community and collective rights, which is really how a majority of Israelis understand their own identity. Now, that said, I think that the the attacks against the the court have been highly exaggerated. For all the flaws of the court, this is not a hyper-activist court. In the last 30-odd years, the court has, has, has vetoed 22 Knesset bills. When you compare that to other courts, it is well within the norm. And this court, the, the Supreme Court, has consistently sided with the IDF. When the army comes to the court and says, we need to do XY human rights violations for the sake of security, for the most part, the court will authorize the the, the army's request. That's something that the right tends to to finesse. Uh, this is not a a a post zionist court. That's that's an outrageous uh, accusation, and you hear that routinely on the right. And so there's been a great deal of exaggeration uh, now in. In the liberal camp, there needs to be more of an acknowledgement of the flaws of the court. This is the Supreme Court is not the Sanhedrin. you know. This isn't this isn't a a, a sacred body that's that's beyond reproach. Uh, I believe in, on some level it is as close to a sacred body as a secular body can be, but nevertheless, it still is a secular institution, and it needs to be treated that way. So we need, we, I, I do understand the critique up to a point, but again, that critique cannot be used to justify a morally illegitimate government uh, from from destroying the, the, the independence of the court.
2: So let's talk about your letter because, and that, that will bridge us to American <laughs> Jews, you know, um, I think probably many people on this call know that um, uh, relatively recently, you and Mati Friedman and Danny Gordis wrote, I think, a somewhat unprecedented kind of piece in the Times of Israel, a letter to uh, your American friends, um, expressing much of what you're expressing right now and kind of calling on us um, to raise our voices. And I'm just curious about the process that went into writing that letter for you, Yossi. I would say you're, you're not, I don't think, known as a left-wing critic of Israel um, or, or someone who calls upon American Jews to publicly um, criticize Israel. I would call you one of Israel's defenders, certainly in this space. So kind of what led you guys to send that letter um, and what, what are you hoping will come out of it?
1: Yeah, I think that what was unprecedented about that letter is that it came from three people who are identified with the center and in Danny's case, the center-right. So, <laughs> uh, and and, and None of us have ever done anything remotely like that. I mean, I've, I've long believed that diaspora Jews not only have the right, but the responsibility to make themselves heard, whether on the right or the left. You know, when, when, uh, when uh, American Jews on the right were vigorously protesting the Oslo Agreement in the 1990s, I felt that they were well within their rights to do that. And, uh, and, and there's a game that Israelis play with the diaspora, which is Israelis like to say, don't get involved. We're the ones who pay the price. But if you're on the left, you welcome left-wing uh, diaspora intervention in Israeli affairs. If you're on the right, you do the same move with right-wing diaspora Jews. So I think we need to, first of all, just come clean and, and tell diaspora Jews across the board We take ourselves seriously as the state of the Jewish people. We are all citizens of the Jewish people. You have the right, the responsibility to make your voices heard on whatever that issue is. When it comes to security, in the end, we will make those decisions. But I want to know what the Jews think about about our security policies as well. You, You are my closest allies. You hold up a mirror to me. And you know when you're in this relentless kind of conflict, existential war, you need friends from a distance who can tell you, "Listen, this is what you look and sound like in the world, and maybe maybe you should reconsider some of this." So that's that's as, just as a general, um, say, per, the parameters of that that I personally brought to the letter. I, I, it wasn't a a fundamental transformation uh, of my position on diaspora uh, criticism. But what really prompted this letter was the the feeling that the fight for a decent Israel, for a liberal Israel, and I'm using the word liberal in its broadest possible sense. That includes uh, moderate conservatives, and, and left of center democrats it, it 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 is the umbrella of all those who cherish democratic values that's for me that's that's what the word liberal means and the fight for a liberal israel is is as much your fight as it is ours and that's really what prompted us to write this uh, the feeling that for, there, The the first motive was to tell American Jews, pay attention to this issue. This is not just one more internal Israeli debate. This is something different. This is something we've never experienced before. Look, until this started, I had no idea how many judges there were on the Supreme Court. I had no idea how judges were appointed. I've done a crash course in issues that never interested me. I I I always you know I want to keep as far away from the law as possible, and uh, and and yet we've as a society we've all become mini experts <laughs> in, in these arcane legal issues, and and so the first impulse that we had in reaching out to American Jews is I know we know that this sounds like 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 an obscure debate it's not this is going to define. Whether Israel remains a decent country, a country that you can be proud of. And that, and and that's that's basic. And so that was the first impulse. And the second was, you know, going to these demonstrations has been one of the most uplifting experiences that I have ever had as an Israeli. Hmm. First of all, you're surrounded by tens of thousands of people who you know are going through exactly the same torments and sleepless nights that you are. And truthfully, I never lost sleep over any of Israel's problems. I didn't lose sleep over the Iran deal, which I hated and and did my best to oppose. Uh, I, I didn't lose sleep over the suicide bombings, those terrible years of the second Intifada, I'm losing sleep over this. And I know that there are many, many other Israelis who are losing sleep as well. So you're standing in this crowd of people, you look around and you see this sense of this reassurance. You're, You're not alone. And the other thing that you feel in these demonstrations is this overwhelming love that Israelis across the political spectrum feel for this country. You know, this is the opposition. And yet you look at this opposition and what are we carrying? Tens of, literally, tens of thousands of giant Israeli flags. Now, I think it's fair to say when progressives in America demonstrate, you don't have a sea of American flags. The American flag tends to be appropriated by the other side of the political spectrum. That's not the case in Israel. The flag belongs to everyone, and um, and so there's something so moving. And I just, you know, I would urge Amer- I would urge any of you if you're going to Israel, go to go to the demonstrations, experience that you will be very uplifted. You will, this is, it's not, yes, there's tremendous anger, great anger, but it's, it's such righteous anger. There's so much purity in that anger. And it's really, it's the purity of love. So that's, I wanted American Jews to share in this moment because two things are happening in Israel now. One, one thing that's very bad and one thing that's very good. And and it sounds like it's the same thing, but it isn't. The thing that's very bad is that liberal Israel is fighting for its life. The beautiful thing is that liberal Israel is fighting. And it is fighting in in the most determined way that I have ever seen. I've been through lots of political campaigns. I've been through lots of different kinds of demonstrations. I have never experienced this kind of mass determination, uh, as I I have in these last weeks on on the streets in Israel. And I, I want American Jews to know that this is not only a terrible moment in Israel. It is a terrible moment, but something very powerful is happening. Liberal Israel is awakening, and I think this is going to be a turning point. It's not going to happen overnight. We're going to be going through terrible things, I fear, uh, in the coming weeks. But in the long term, I feel that we are laying the groundwork for a new leadership in Israel Hmm. and uh, and a new awakening. That was hopeful. Um, That's the best, at this moment, Mark, that's that's the best I can do at home.
2: So l- l- I want to stay on the question about American Jews, because um, I think first and foremost, this is about the identity of Israel, um, the democratic and Jewish identity of Israel. And we could talk a little more about the Jewish identity of Israel. We spent a lot of time on the judiciary and the and the democratic. But I have to say, I think I, I many of us are also concerned about the Jewish identity of Israel in terms of religious pluralism, in terms of what that means for us. But let me just ask you. You know, short of the invitation for us to lose sleep with you, you know, I have to say, I'm finding this moment as an American Jew and an American Jewish leader incredibly humbling because I'm not sure what our role is or what we can do in this moment. And I've gotten a lot of questions that people have said, should we not be going to Israel because it looks like we're supporting the government? Should we be, you know, um, what are the other things that we could be doing to support the the people who are protesting? Like, what, what do you recommend if you have any ideas for us as an American Jewish community who shares these concerns, even though we, by the way, have a lot of diversity in our community as well, you know, what should we be doing right now?
1: So, first of all, uh, the letter that, that Mati, Danny, and I wrote uh, deliberately did not present a program. Mm-hmm. And the, our feeling was, well, certainly my feeling, and I think they felt this way as well, was that it's not our place to tell American Jews how to do how to do solidarity? Hmm. Uh, American American Jewry is an incredibly capable community. No one knows how to organize better than American Jews, and and I don't. So that's 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 my preliminary uh, response. Uh, the move that that we're doing at the Hartman Institute is telling Amer- tr- telling American Jews. That that is is to invite American Jews into this Israeli moment, and the the discussions that we're having in Hartman. We just had one today on the I Engage team, the the seminar, our weekly uh, seminar uh, of American, of 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 Hartman North America and 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 Israel was exactly on on this question, which is how do we invite. American Jews into this Israeli moment. And how do we make this a Jewish moment and not just an Israeli moment? So the 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 first principle here is that is that is that you not only have the right, you have the responsibility to somehow be part of this in, in whatever way. And 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 I'll and I'll I'll expand that and say whatever your politics are, if you're for the government then you have the right and the responsibility to uh, to make your voice heard because this is your crucial moment as well we this is a moment where israel is being refashioned hmm. everyone has a stake in it so that's that's a, that's just a a a principle and and once, once that principle is established then we can talk about specifics now What I would like to see are solidarity rallies with Israeli democracy. Now, there was a demonstration last week at the Israeli consulate by left-wing Jewish groups. That was a protest. I'm not talking about a protest. I'm talking about a solidarity rally where American Jews stand up and affirm what they love about Israel. What is the Israel that they are defending? That's very different than an angry uh, anti-APAC demonstration at the Israeli consulate. That for me has absolutely no value. It's, it's, it' has it has a negative impact. This and and when I speak about a positive rally, that's a reflection of what the Israeli rallies are. I want to see a, I want to see thousands of American Jews holding giant Israeli flags. In front of their local Israeli councillors, saying, "This we we believe in Israel. We believe in the future of Israel. This is a moment for American Jews to publicly articulate the Israel that they want, the Israel that they believe in. What is your Israel?" And um, and so and so in that sense, I think that 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 when when I speak when I speak about demonstrations. They're not. They're not the kinds that. They're, they're not True uh, and J Street. It's it's the AJC and 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 and, uh, and the ADL and uh, the JCPA and it's 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 that. It's it's that part of the Jewish community. It's the mainstream. It's the pro-Israel center. And one of the things that I think is really important for American Jews to understand about what's happened in Israel is that Israel is no longer divided between right versus left. There's no left left in Israel. The Labor Party is the smallest party in the Knesset, four seats. The Labor Party, the party that founded the state of Israel, has been reduced to to the smallest party, Merits to the left of labor, didn't cross the threshold. The opposition to the right in Israel is the center. The center has much in common with the left, but it also has elements in common with the right. And American Jews, the mainstream American Jewish community, needs to connect to the Israeli center. The people out there demonstrating are mostly from the center in Israel. Netanyahu has tried to portray us all as leftists and anarchists. And and that's that's you know that's that's how he deals with opposition. He delegitimizes it by saying you're all leftists. Now I'm looking for partners in the mainstream American Jewish community. Partners in anguish, partners in in complexity. And that I find in the center. There is a big center in the American Jewish community. And that's what I want to activate. And when I when when I speak about demonstrations, I, I, I imagine demonstrations from the from the passionately pro-Israel center. And that will have a very different tone than, than an angry demonstration uh, of the left.
2: I'm just thinking, Yossi, that there's a little bit of a tension between that and what you said earlier, which is almost an invitation to anyone who feels a stake in the future of Israel, like join the conversation. This is a moment of what did you call it? Israel being refashioned. And I'm thinking about, you know, in some ways, this is a, um, this is a, a, a moment of kind of like a, a new reimagining of what Zionism means, which includes the relationship between Israel and North American Jewry. And I think what you're calling for isn't just a galvanizing of the pro-Israel center, but also a um, an invitation for people to just feel a stake in this and to do so from a place of love. And I just want to acknowledge, I think there are people all across the spectrum in this community, including those who have been at those demonstrations in front of the consulate that are doing it from a place of genuine love. And, you know, maybe part of what we're feeling right now is actually a a cracking open of the possibility for a new kind of honest, very open conversation among American Jews about the kind of Israel that we want to see.
1: Yeah, so I would say that I'm really, Advocating two moves here, the first immediate move is to galvanize the American Jewish pro-Israel center to connect with the Israeli center in defense of Israeli democracy. But more broadly, to change the ground rules of the of the diaspora-Israel conversation. And this and look, this is something that that we were speaking about at Hartman for years, that that. Let's get serious about the relationship. Let's have a relationship of Jewish grownups, and uh, and Jewish grownups means that that we have we have we have equal we have equal concerns, passions. Uh, we 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 all have deep uh, a deep stake in the outcome of uh, of what kind of an Israel. Uh, it emerges and I want to see, of course I want to see a healthy engagement. The alternative is is drifting away is alienation. And um, look I I, I don't I, I, I have a great deal of of critique of the American Jewish left and the American Jewish right, Both. Uh, but I want to see them engaged. Now I, I I leave out two groups in that in that in that uh, constellation. Uh, the first is the our anti-Zionist leftists, and the others are anti-democratic rightists. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I I have no place in my broad otherwise broad tent for Jewish anti-Zionists and for Kahanists. Those two groups, for me, are beyond the pale. And I think the Jewish community needs to, to draw the line there. But that, but short of those red lines, there's a very wide space for debate, diversity, for, for lots of disagreement. I passionately disagree with much of the discourse in the American Jewish community. But I welcome that discourse. And I've spoken at J Street at, at, at the J Street uh, National Convention, and and I would speak for J Street anytime. I say what I have to say. But if they're if if they invite me, of course I'll go. They're they're part of, they're 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 part of my being. They're a part of my being that I argue with. But uh, they they're 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 not extraneous to me. The anti-Zionist left has made itself. Um, foreign, foreign to me. I have no shared language with them anymore. No shared, no shared commitments. And the same goes for uh, the same goes for for the anti-democratic communists. I have no shared language and, and no shared vision with them.
2: I mean, I'll just say in the spirit of hope, if if you see some of these really difficult moments as the potential for things to crack open and not just to crack apart, I will just say I think I've long felt like the American Jewish community has not been able to tolerate or replicate some of the range of discourse that you can find even in average Israeli newspapers yes. without questioning their loyalty. And I love the image of the Israeli flags at these protests because, you know, the concept of loving critique, which is such a core Jewish value. Like we we tend to either do love really well without critique or a lot of critique with, you know, only- not much
1: love. Maybe without conditional
2: love. love. And I mean, this is a larger conversation about our world and not just the American, you know, the Jewish relationship with Israel, but boy, do we need a kind of revolution in loving critique. And, and I'll add one more dimension to it, which is loving critique that is also grounded in, in knowledge. And in learning, and I think I, I mean I think one of the you've said this to me before, as has Danny Gordis in a follow-up. Um, we cannot underestimate how important it is for evenings like this, and for those of us who care, to keep educating ourselves about the situation because it's really hard to do loving critique well when it's not on a foundation of actual knowledge, understanding, and curiosity.
1: I, I so much appreciate your point, Mark, about using this. Moment of crisis as an opportunity for for rethinking the parameters of the diaspora conversation on Israel, and uh, and again, I think it's time to to grow up as a, as a as a diaspora. Now, I, I I understand and to some extent share the fears about feeding the anti-Israel lynch mob, but if God forbid. This government prevails and 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 effectively destroys the judicial system. Then what we're going to be facing internationally uh, is so severe that any um, collateral damage from uh, a, a vigorous American Jewish conversation about about Israel uh, will be so insignificant and. The the there's a very serious concern uh, in uh, among among opponents of of the judicial revolution that we will be exposing ourselves uh, to um, to serious intervention by the HAG and and other international forums and that what's prevented what's kept what's kept Israel relatively immune. From that kind of active uh, uh, intervention in Israel's internal affairs is the fact that we have a respected, independent judiciary. And in, in they in the judges in the Hag know that we have the capacity to to monitor ourselves. If we lose that, we're going to start seeing Israel treated as um, as a war as 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 an illegitimate country, and we won't have the defenses that we have now. And that's something else that this, I mean, this government is going to leave us vulnerable in so many ways.
2: Yossi, can you help us understand, and I'm mindful of time, we've got about 10 minutes left. Can, do you have a sense of how this comes back from the brink? You know, I mean, I think, some people wrote in, you know, other than the protests, like, where do you see this going? And how do you, um, how do you see some uh, resolution to this you know, in, in any positive way?
1: So one, one of the most disorienting aspects of this moment for me personally uh, has been that, that this strong oppositional position that I'm taking um, is very much out of my centrist political character. Because all these years, I've looked for the truths across the political and cultural spectrum. And, and my basic approach to Israel's problems is that the greatest threat is if one or the other of, of our positions prevails to the, exclusively to the detriment of the other position, where, where one part of the country feels fundamentally alienated from the national identity or national policy, and that a healthy Israeli policy integrates the essential insights from across the spectrum. This issue, I believe, is different. And it's different because we're dealing with a government that is not morally legitimate, a government that has no rules, that is violating all the the norms that have have held Israeli society together for 75 years. And and because of that, uh, I don't believe that we can negotiate with this government. This government will not negotiate in good faith, uh, in the same way that Netanyahu brought in Benny Gantz into a previous coalition, and then spit him out as soon as it was politically expedient, used his naivete, There is is zero trust in Netanyahu and in this government. And so I believe that it's premature to call for a negotiated compromise. This government must feel that it has no choice but to negotiate. It cannot come to the table from a position of strength. And so I'm relating to this government not as a partner, but as but as 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 an opponent, hmm. and, and and I have never been in that oppositional uh, relationship with any Israeli government. And you know what we'll hear Netanyahu say is, "Oh, the opposition are sore losers. They can't get over the fact that the right won an election." I've been living with right wing governments for forty years. I, I made Aliyah into a right wing government. Begin was prime minister when I moved to Israel, so. I have no problem living under a right-wing government. I have no problem accepting the legitimacy of a right-wing government. This government is not what l- does not resemble anything that we've seen until now. And so, you know, from from the communists to the Likudniks, who are trying to destroy the judiciary in in every way, this is a revolutionary government. And. And revolutionaries have, uh, are very loose with their moral scruples. Ends always justify means. And that's what we're dealing with here. And because of that, uh, I don't believe it's time yet to negotiate with them. They need to understand that they have no choice but to negotiate. And uh, I think we're getting close to that point because we're really, you know, the demonstrations not only are they not letting up, and I'm sure Netanyahu thought they would just exhaust themselves, but the demonstrations are getting stronger from week to week. And the economic pressure internally is getting stronger. And we're seeing we're seeing different sectors of Israeli society organize in ways that we haven't seen. You know, the 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 the, the security sector. The high tech sector, doctors. I mean, it's the 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 level of organizing, spontaneous organizing that's happening in Israel. I think is unprecedented, and so I want this to play itself out a little bit more, and then we come to the government from a position of strength. Otherwise, this government will trample on any agreement. It will violate any promise it made. And it cannot be taken at its word So i'm hearing you
2: say keep pressuring keep protesting keep raising our voices keep pressuring keep the energy high build capacities of 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 a kind of like a, a center leadership and then just over time it's it, hopefully it will weaken this government and bring them to the table of negotiations um absolutely
1: it already has weakened them and we see it in the polls the government has lost support of its own voters for the judicial revolution a majority of 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 Israelis 65 percent oppose the government's judicial revolution 30 percent support it I mean so in that sense the government is losing and the pressure has to be relentless
2: got it all right, let me bring us back for one last question, because I think, um, and, and uh, you've, you've alluded to this already, but I want to come back to the, you know, um, the relationship of our community with Israel. I open this by saying we intend to bring 1000 people to Israel this year, I personally think, and you and I have discussed this, that this is a time to lean in and not out. I think many of us are wrestling with the question of how do we stay deeply, deeply invested in all the ways that we are, by the way, personally, philanthropically, and do it with integrity, both our own integrity and with the integrity of the aspirational Israel that we believe in, even if we're seeing gaps between Israel as we believe it should be in Israel as it is today. So kind of what's your message to us um, as you leave us tonight? Um, as American Jews who want to stay in this relationship um, with love and with integrity.
1: So um, before I answer that question, Mark, I see a question on the screen if I could briefly address it, because yeah. it's, it's, it's a core argument uh, that, uh, that the Netanyahu camp uses. And I, I think it's important to address the question is, why do you reject the legitimacy of the Israeli electorate? Don't you think you're spreading hysteria? So, as far as as far as the second part of the question, um, no, no speaker ever thinks he's spreading hysteria, even if he is. So the answer is no. I don't think I'm spreading hysteria. Uh, as far as the uh, the first part of the question, uh, why do you reject the legitimacy of the Israeli electorate? So. Three answers. Number one, I don't reject the legitimacy of the Israeli electorate. I, I, I do not reject the legitimacy of a right-wing majority. Uh, a majority of Israelis are right-wing, and we should have a right-wing government that reflects that majority. This government and the moves this government is making does not reflect the majority, even the majority that voted for it. There was a poll that was just, just released, I think this was yesterday. Uh, asking, asking Likud voters, did you know that you were voting for this judicial policy? Over sixty percent said they did not. The government, at no point, was were, was Netanyahu and other Likud uh, Likud uh, um, Knesset members upfront about what this program was going to be. They were very vague. They promised. Uh, a a consensus a consensual uh, transition a gradual transition N- they did not indicate that this is what they were going to do and at this speed uh, and 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 that the changes would be so deep so so when we talk about what uh, uh, what this government uh, wh- wh- whether whether this government reflects the will of the people and we're seeing The polls showing now, if elections were held today, this government would lose. They're down to 58 seats. They lost six seats in three months. That has to be a record in Israel. And so, no, I don't believe that this government, as in the policies it's currently undertaking, reflects the will of the majority. And the final point is, even a democratically elected majority does not have the right to destroy democracy. It does not have the right to trample on minority rights. It does not have the right to dismantle democratic institutions in the name of democracy. That kind of democracy is Hamas democracy. Hamas won an election. But democracy is more than winning an election, it's a culture, it's a series of norms, it's protecting institutions, it's protecting minority rights. And that's an, an all of those counts, this government has failed. Now, to conclude with uh, with your with your question, this is the seventy fifth year of, uh, of of Israel's independence, and this is really a moment to not only defend what we love about Israel, but to remind ourselves about this moment in Jewish history that we are privileged to be custodians of. We have never experienced in all of Jewish history anything like this moment in terms of Jewish sovereignty and diaspora empowerment. We have never had a more powerful, vigorous, important expression of Jewish sovereignty than the modern state of Israel. And that includes the kingdom of David and Solomon. This is as good as it gets in Jewish history in terms of Jewish sovereignty. And as far as the diaspora goes, we have never had a Jewish community as strong, as confident, as accepted for all of the, the, the worries, understandable worries about the rise of anti-Semitism. antisemitism. This is as good as it gets in diaspora. And so either one of these achievements, the sovereign state of Israel or the North American diaspora would have been enough to transform Jewish life for generations to come. The fact that these two communities emerged more or less simultaneously, the self-confident American Jewish community that we know today emerged after World War II. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, that, that these two communities emerged at the same time because we reinforced each other. American Jewry reinforced us in practical terms, Israel reinforced American Jewry psychologically and spiritually. And we need to rethink for the 21st century, what, is the, what are the ways in which that extraordinary symbiotic relationship can continue to be nurtured. And, and what is our responsibility to protect what I would call the two flags on the Bima and what and what those two flags represent? And um, I'm, I'm writing a book now about the meaning of contemporary Jewish survival, about how the Jews overcame the Holocaust, how we went from the lowest point in our history to what really is the peak point in Jewish history today. And I think a lot about the two flags on the Bema and the intuition that American Jews had in the '40s and '50s to place those two secular symbols at the most sacred spot in the synagogue, and that was an acknowledgment that these two flags represented the ability of the Jewish people to overcome the Holocaust, and and that's what we're fighting for now. We're fighting. For those two flags and everything that they represent, and for the ability of American Jews to keep those two flags at that sacred space,
0: okay.
1: and um, and I the, and I think we're going to win because there's tremendous power there, but that's what's at stake here, and that's why I, I'm so grateful, Mark, to you and to Amy and to all of you for this conversation because. This is exactly what we all need to be talking about together. So thank you. Thank you, Yossi.
2: Thank you, Yossi, thank you everyone for being here. Um, Amy, I'm gonna turn it back over to you to wrap us up.
0: Quick wrap up, quick wrap up. Yossi, if this is as good as it gets, then it's on us because it's gotta get better than this because we're clearly not there yet. So. Um, thank you for being with us tonight, Yessie. This was very um, powerful. Your remarks are powerful at this very complicated time. So thank you for being here. Mark, thank you for partnering with Temple Emanuel, as always. And to all of you online, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, I want to invite you to join us next month when our Temple Emanuel Hartman Learning continues. We have an in-person speaker on March 20th, and hopefully we will, in fact, be in person in the Rabbi Samuel Chiel Sanctuary with Micha Goodman on Monday night, March 20th. Mm -hmm. And Yossi, he's talking a bit about what you talked about, that there really is, there's no left, there's no right, everybody's in the center right now. The left has sort of gone away, and he's talking about, his topic is called the Invisible Israeli Mainstream and um, building a little bit on that point that you made. So in any event, again, thank you all for being here tonight. Join us on March 20th. We will have a recording of tonight's session later in the week on our Temple Manual website in the Hartman Learning Initiative section. So you can look for it there. And um, again, have a, have a good night. Thanks for being with us.